Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Okay. So this is a, obviously a continuation of what we saw in chapter 3, which was the burning bush. Moses came across a bush in the desert that was burning, but not being consumed. And out of that bush, the angel of the Lord, which we discussed, is the Lord himself, spoke to him and said, I'm sending you back to Egypt to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, and I'm going to relieve them of their slavery. And Moses had two objections that we've seen so far. The first one was, who am I that you would send someone like me? And the second one was, well, what if they ask your name? What am I supposed to say then? And then we had the revelation of the Lord's name, the tetragram, the Yahweh name of the Lord. Well, this is the third objection. And there are going to be five of these. And by the end of it, the Lord is, is going to have to finally tell Moses, that's enough. It's time to get to work. Because look at what he says. He essentially disagrees with God. First thing he says is, oh, who am I? Very humble, very appropriate thing to say. And God says, don't worry, I'll be with you. Second thing he says, well, if they ask, how do we know the Lord appeared to you? What's his name? And the Lord gives this magnificent revelation of his name and lays out the plan of what's going to happen. Moses answered and says, well, that's great, but they're not going to believe me. And I, I was struck by that this time. He said, how will I know they'll believe me? And the Lord says, this is how. And Moses goes, that, that's not going to work. He tells the Lord, they're not going to believe me or listen to me. Because last time, that's exactly what happened. They said to him, who made you a judge over us? Who do you think you are coming in here, rich boy? Acting like you're one with the oppressed people and you've never been oppressed a day in your life? Get out of here. Moses is like, I know these people. They're not going to listen to me. He fears that they will doubt him. And in one sense, you can... You can Sympathize with Moses here. Because God has given Moses a mighty vision, a task to accomplish. He painted this picture for Moses of what's going to happen. You will worship me at this mountain. But the task is greater than he is. The job is bigger than him. And likewise, God has given each of us a task to accomplish. God wants to give you a mighty vision to fulfill. And I've talked about this many times, but let's just remind ourselves of why we believe that. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When God made you, he had works in mind for you to do. I call this the divine to-do list sometimes. I like that. that. There's footsteps to walk in and God wants you to walk in them. 1 Corinthians 7 17. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Lots of so-called spiritual people like to get cute and say, well, just because you're doing it doesn't mean you're called to do it. Well, that's true, but 1 Corinthians 7, 17 says you have a life assigned to you and you have a calling on your life. It's not just reserved for prophets and kings. You have a calling, a purpose, a task to accomplish. And this is important to know because we've been following this progression with Moses like we did with Jacob, that he began at home, tried to accomplish what he wanted to do, didn't work, and he ended up in the wilderness, which is a symbol of upheaval, of change, of uncertainty, ultimately of discipline, Deuteronomy 8 tells us. And in the wilderness, we said the most important thing you need to do is meet God. If you don't meet, the God, meet God in the middle of your trouble, 
you've wasted your time. And you might have to go back to that wilderness to make sure you don't miss it. But meeting God in the wilderness, as Moses did here, is not just about feeling good and getting a lot of warm tinglys that God was there. I saw God in a burning bush. Moses could tell that story the rest of his life, and people would have thought a lot of him. But that's not the reason God appeared to him. It's about getting down to business. And church should be like that too. I love having amazing church services where the worship is, is uplifting and, and fills you with fire and the preaching is great and the fellowship is good and you go home and you go, man, I'm so glad I'm a Christian. That's great. We need those. But there's a purpose behind them, which is it's time for you to get to work. We all have a ministry to accomplish. Every one of you has been given a spiritual gift, according to 1 Corinthians 12, to accomplish the work God gave you. You have a ministry to accomplish. You might have a relationship to mend. That could be what God's called you to do. That there is a, a breach in a friendship or a marriage or whatever that needs to be repaired. And God wants you to do that. You've got an idea that God wants you to realize. There's something about His Word that the church today is not understanding, and God has called you to be the one, like Martin Luther, to bring that out. In spite of all your flaws and all your troubles, God says they need to know this. There's a work that you have to create. There's something you need to develop. There's something you need to build that God is going to use for His kingdom, even if that's your, as we say, secular business. God wants to lift it up so that you can build a place where people can experience what it's like to work for and as a Christian and to even grow it and finance the kingdom work that others are doing more directly. There's a soul that you've got to save. There are people that will only listen to you. Have you noticed that? There might be somebody in your life that has been so burned by Christians, or maybe he's just a cynical person in general, has nothing to do with Jesus. They just don't like people, but they like you and they'll listen to you. The Lord has assigned you to them to bring their soul into the kingdom. There might be an evil that God has called you to eradicate. Maybe your family has a history of addiction and divorce, and God's like, you're going to be the one that's going to put a stop to this. And I'm going to change your family. I'm going to change the way y'all live life, and it's going to happen through you. It could even be something great, like, like something national, like those that campaign to end slavery or, or whatever it is. And you could even say, in a sense, that that was the purpose of your salvation. Now, God saved you because He loves you. God saved you for His own glory. That, that's all true. But there's another very important thing here, that God saved you because the Lord is working to save the rest of the world, and He needed you to live out what He's called you to do. That's pretty special, isn't it? But hold on now. That's all cool. But if you have any sense, you're terrified of that. <laughs> You're terrified of the thought that that person's soul might depend on my evangelism. That's a horrible thing to consider, isn't it? Or to think that the Lord has called me to do this ministry, and this ministry is going to reach X number of people. So if I fail, what does that say about those people? If I don't do what God has called me to do, if I, if I don't build that business we were talking about that, that can be used for kingdom purposes, then there might be missionaries that go unfunded or needs that don't get met, and that can start to weigh on your mind a little bit. And it's just flippant to say things like, well, you shouldn't focus on yourself, and God's going to do His will. God's called you to do His will. God uses people. Like, let's look at Gideon. We feel like Gideon an awful lot, don't we? Gideon was living at a time where Midian, rhymes, no reason, Midian was oppressing the land of Israel. Because 
of that, Gideon is in his wine cellar threshing wheat. You're supposed to do that up on top of a mountain so that the wind can blow the chaff away, but he's doing it in secret so that they won't come and steal his grain. Not exactly a brave thing to do, is it? Because now you've got a big mess, and how is that really going to be effective? And you've got to pick them out one by one. And the angel of the Lord shows up to him and says, Hail, mighty man of valor. <laughs> and he says, I'm going to use you to save Israel. And in Judges 6, verses 15 through 16, Gideon said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Gideon was like, listen, not only is Israel weaker than Midian, we're divided into tribes. I'm in a weak tribe, and my clan is the weakest in that clan, and my family is weakest in that clan, and I'm the weakest in my family. You went to the very bottom of the barrel, Lord. You're getting, you're getting splinters under your fingernails scraping for me. And the Lord goes, but I'll be with you. This is the same story where God told Gideon you had too many men in your army. This is how we feel sometimes when God reveals what he wants us to do. A lot of times we just dismiss it because we think there's no way. Like, I really would like to X. And we go, I like that would ever happen. And here's the truth. You're right. Why would anybody believe that God gave you a job to do? Moses shows up after 40 years. Most people might not even remember who he was. He says, God appeared to me in the wilderness. Yeah, right. Sometimes you tell people what you think God has called you to do, and they try to talk you off the ladder, you know. Like, all right, just, just chill out. There's a long way to go before that's even possible. And some people even think it's weird and wrong to dream big for the Lord. They feel like it's carnal. But that's not the case. And why do you think you'll be able to pull off your calling anyway? What makes you think that David can beat Goliath? It makes no sense. So we sympathize with Moses. But Moses has forgotten what he just learned. Who God is. He said, I'll be with you, Moses. And that's... That's enough. And we're going to see today three reasons, if you're taking notes, why the mission is possible because of the Lord. Why the impossible mission is, in fact, possible because of the Lord. So we sympathize with Moses. We're in the same place. We say, Lord, this isn't going to work. But look at verse 2. God says, the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Well, Moses throws down his staff. This is the first appearance of Moses' staff. We're going to see an awful lot of it. And the staff at this time was not just a walking stick, you know. It, it was that, but it also was a, 
was a symbol of authority. I read one author that had a very interesting discussion of how the staff was a very personal thing. It would be carved. It would be made just the way you like it. And later, uh, you remember the story in Genesis where Judah gave Tamar his staff as a pledge. So it wasn't just a stick. It was his. It was very much his staff. It, you know, it was a tool, of course, in Moses' hand. He used it as a shepherd's crook, I would imagine. And it also would be a weapon. And he throws it on the ground and it becomes a serpent and Moses runs from it. I mentioned not long ago we were hiking and we saw a big old rattlesnake. And it was rattling its tail and hissing and all coiled up ready to strike. And if the Lord told me, go and pick that thing up by the tail, I feel like that would be a braver thing than anything I'd ever say to Pharaoh later on. And in fact, we know that unless you're the crocodile hunter, you're supposed to try to pin it down by, with a stick and pick it up by the neck so it can't bite you. And Moses is going to reach up and grab it by the tail, and it turned into a staff immediately. He puts his hand inside of his cloak and pulls it out, and it says his hand became leprous like snow. So some of your translations will have white like snow, as in it, it became that color. Obviously, he wouldn't have had white skin at this point as we describe it. Uh, but it just says like snow, which somebody said this, which was kind of icky, but they said it could be not that it was white like snow, but that it was flaky and falling off of his body like snow, which is very gross, but that's what, that's what that disease was. And obviously I should mention too, leprosy as we think of it today is something very specific called Hansen's disease where the fingers begin to fall off and so on. But uh, at this point, leprosy was kind of a catch-all term for any contagious skin disease. So later on, it'll talk about leprosy going away. Hansen's disease, as we have it, doesn't really go away. But you, you just got to know that, especially in these older passages. So we don't really know exactly what disease he had, except that it made his hand like snow. And then the third sign, he's told about taking the water of the Nile and pouring it on the ground and it turning to blood. That'll be a big point later. The whole Nile River is going to turn to blood. So we will come back to that. So God has given Moses signs to convince the Israelites, and in my opinion, trying to convince Moses too. Because Moses is all concerned that they're not going to believe him, and Moses is sitting here not even believing God. And there's something to be said for signs, miraculous signs. Jesus did many signs for the people, didn't he? They come to stone him at one point. He said, I've done many good works among you. Which one of them are you stoning me for? Was it for healing the blind man or healing the leper? Which one is worthy of death? But he also recognized in Matthew 12, 39, that signs are inferior to faith. As a foolish and adulterous generation asks for a sign from God. Because doubters are going to doubt no matter what, right? Pharaoh's going to see ten plagues and then some, and he's still not going to believe. And the Israelites are going to become very accustomed to their own signs later, and they're going to say, all we have to eat is this manna, this bread that snows every morning. And it's like, are you crazy <laughs> to, to think that this bread is insufficient that falls from the sky every day doubters are going to doubt no matter what is jesus's point but there is a place for signs and it's not always wrong to ask for them the point here is that god does not expect moses to use his own power to do this this is the first point that when god calls you to do something impossible you need god's power and here's the good news when you're doing god's work you have access to God's power, the same that Moses had access to, and in a way greater than what Moses had access to, because the Holy Spirit is within you now. We often think of Paul as a, an amazing preacher that just could go and, and win a crowd over. 
not sure why we say that. The book of Acts shows us the exact opposite. But look at what he said in 1 Corinthians 2, 4 through 5. Paul says, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says, when I come to preach, I, I don't spend a lot of time layering argument upon argument and doing the philosophy thing and trying to convince people. He says, I just get right down to the gospel and the demonstration of the Spirit. Which is why they would say later, Paul's letters were weighty. Oh, we're reading Romans, you all know. It's, it's dense and it's, it's profound and it's been studied for thousands of years. But it says his bodily presence was weak. You go to hear Paul preach, you're not going to get Romans. You're going to get the gospel. And then Paul would do like he did at that one city. I believe it was um, Lystra, where he saw a lame man sitting there and he says, get up and walk. That was Paul's method, was the demonstration of the Spirit's power. Why? He says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. He says, I don't want to convince you into the kingdom. I want you to know for a fact, be like the blind man in John 9 that said, you can tell me whatever you want. I used to be blind and I see now. So I don't really care what you have to say. That's the importance of the Spirit's role in our lives. That's why we should not try to stifle the Spirit, as the Word says. And the same Spirit that was in Paul and Moses lives in you. Romans 8.11 says, The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. So you hear the phrase sometimes, resurrection power. That comes from Romans 8.11. It means that God is ready to support you in your mission. Whatever he's called you to do, God is ready to give you help. Miracles and answers to prayer, they're not for convenience. You know, sometimes we want to lay hands on our car to, to get the gas to go a few extra miles, you know. Or sometimes we're like, Lord, do an incredible thing so that I can go home and talk about how great this meeting was. Set the bush on fire, but don't let it burn. That, that's not what the miracles and the power of God are for. They're for battle. It's to accomplish the mission. It's the church when it was the most evangelistic and on the front lines of the gospel message that saw the power of God at work. And it's the same thing today. The ones that are the most evangelistic and dealing with those that know God the least are the ones that see the Spirit at work the most. So if you are doing what God has called you to do, if you know your task, your mission, your calling, your vision, whatever it is, if you know that and you're doing it, and you're giving it the best of your ability. You're not being lazy, right? You're not a foolish, lazy servant, as the Bible says. But you're doing your best. Then turn to God and tell Him what you need to get it done. That is an answer to prayer. There is great power in prayer. Jesus said, ask me. We see the book of Acts. The church was collaborating with the Spirit. They, they would speak to Him. He would speak to them. He would give them what they needed as they stepped out in faith. So you shouldn't be afraid to ask God for help if you are in His will and doing His work. Do you need money? Maybe you're in a situation and you're trying to do what God's called you to do and the funds just aren't there. Ask God for money. Psalmist said He's the one who has the cattle on a thousand hills. The Lord has all the money you need. Don't come in and say, well, God, it's been kind of tight lately. We need help. That's not the same thing, although God can do that too. I'm talking about we're trying to step out and we need this much money, and we don't have it. Ask for the Lord to give it to you. He will. Do you need health? 
God, I'm trying to do what I've called to do, but my health is just racking me and I can't get it done. I cannot do what you've asked me to do because of my health. Well, come and ask the Lord to heal your body. Not just throwing it up, but like, Lord, this is what I need. This is what you've called me to do and I can't because of this. Come and ask the Lord. Do you need a heart change? Maybe you're trying to minister to somebody or with somebody. Your wife, your husband maybe. And you say, I want to do this, but they're resisting. They're pushing back. Then ask the Lord to change their heart. Say, Lord, open up their heart to receive what I'm trying to do. You're trying to share the gospel with somebody. They're just not listening. Don't give up. You go home and you get on your knees and you you go over their head. (laughs) You go to the one that can change their heart. Do you need favor from somebody? You know, we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to build this church building and the city won't give us zoning permits. Oh, get on your knees and pray. The Bible says the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. So is the heart of the planning council, you could say too, right? Do you just need logistical help? Lord, I just can't handle all this. I, I need some wisdom. Then ask the Lord. He'll answer. This is what you need. This is what I think, I don't want to say primary. This is an important function of prayer. That when you're stepping out and you hit an obstacle that you can't overcome on your own, don't just assume that it's God's will for you to stop. Come to the Lord with that specific prayer and fast and pray for it. And I'd say the bigger the obstacle, the more you ought to pray. Because the bigger the obstacle, the more the enemy is going to resist it. So if you're looking to fix your marriage, don't don't think, you know, 10 minutes of prayer is going to do it. If it's been a 10-year problem in the making. Get on your knees and pray like it's been 10 years. And then I should add to this, if we've got God's power, don't be afraid to step out in faith beyond your ability. Don't just think about Christian work like you think about everything else. With appropriate risk management, and we're going to be very conservative and step right within the circle of what we know we can do. All right, that's great. And there's a place for that kind of wisdom. But there's also a place for stepping out in faith. I love the story of 1 Samuel 14. Jonathan and his armor bearer. There was a battle brewing, and the enemies were lined up against each other. Israel's king, Saul, was afraid to go out into battle. And so Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. I love that. He goes, let's go see if we can win the war by ourselves. It may be. That's faith, man. It may be that God will give us the victory. And God did. He supported them with an earthquake. He put fear into the hearts of the Philistines and it got everybody else out of their seats. Don't be afraid to step out. Divine help comes to those who take God-sized steps of faith. So don't be afraid. Well, I can't do it. Of course not. You can't complete the mission on your own. You need God's power, but the good news is, that's exactly what is available to you. That's what God told Moses. But in verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore, go! (laughs) And I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Here's the fourth objection. Moses feels inadequate to speak before Pharaoh or even his own people. Slow of speech and tongue. Literally there, that's heavy of speech and tongue. 
You ever get nervous and you feel like your tongue's just kind of moving slower than it should? This does not necessarily mean he had a speech impediment of some kind. Acts 7.22 says that Moses in Egypt was mighty in word and deed. So we're not quite sure exactly what Moses is referring to. It could just be like, look, I used to be good at this, but it's been 40 years and I'm not what I used to be. It could be that he always had that speech impediment, but he just was you know, the cocky young prince that thought he could get away with everything. One interesting idea I heard was perhaps Moses was very well spoken in Egyptian and now very well spoken in Midianite language, whatever it was, but he's not as confident in the Hebrew language because he never really had to speak it regularly. I thought that was an interesting idea. The point is, Moses doesn't feel he is rhetorically up to the job. He's not a Shakespearean actor. And God tells him, hey, I made your mouth, Moses. I can make it work. And verse 11 is an interesting verse that maybe we should revisit at another time, where God claims credit for making everyone, even those with disabilities, which is an important reminder because you can take this too far, like the disciples who assumed that because somebody was born blind, he must have done something wrong because God makes the blind, right? And I I think that we should never discourage those who are disabled from seeking healing from the Lord because God made you that way. You don't want to resist the Lord. But it's just a good reminder that God made everybody. And God's in control of the mouth, the eye, the ear. That's the point. Maybe we don't want to push it too far. But maybe it's an interesting discussion for another time. The point here is that Moses doesn't have the words. So he'll have to rely on, number two, the reason the impossible mission is possible is because of God's word. Many men of God who were called, had the same complaint about their mouth. Jeremiah 1 verse 7, he said, Lord, I cannot speak for I'm just a youth. God said, don't say that. I almost get the impression that God was like, everybody always says that. Would you just, no, don't say that anymore. Isaiah even talks about his unclean lips, although I think it's a different thing, but it's something about the mouth and our speech in the presence of God. 2 Corinthians 10.10, I've already referred to it. Paul talked about how he didn't speak well. He was a scholar and a writer, but he did not preach well. Some people just have that. My dad and I, who are are both preachers, we were in the car one time and Adrian Rogers was on the radio. My dad turned it off. He goes, cheater. (laughs) That anybody can preach when you got a voice like that. That's not fair. Yeah, we all feel that way sometimes. In your life and your calling, very often we are called to do exactly that, and that is to speak. Where you've been doing God's work, you've been doing God's will, and now it's time to give God His due for what you've done. And that can be intimidating. And God knows that. Which is why God has not only promised to speak to us, He has given us a repository of His Word to look to. And that's that Bible that is sitting in your lap right now. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17. Familiar verses, but I want to give a slightly different emphasis this time. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for, hear this, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Scriptures are sufficient to prepare you for the work that God's called you to do. The Bible has been given to you to prepare you What do we learn from the Bible? I mean, you learn wisdom from the Bible. You learn theology from the Bible. You learn about prayer from the Bible. You learn about prophecy and how God speaks to his prophets. It gives us joy. It gives us peace. It gives us hope. It gives us courage. 
Reading through the scripture is going to inform your mind and enable you to have confidence when you're talking about godly things because you are familiar with godly things. And if you learn through the Bible what God has done through previous generations, that serves as a template for how God can speak to you and through you. We do this every week going through our Bibles. We're doing it right now with Moses. I mean, let's think about this. If you're looking at your life and the thing God's called you to do, and you're afraid to make a start and to know how to get going, look at Abraham. Abraham, who kind of had a couple false starts, but he stepped out and God thought that was enough. If you've got to step up to the plate, like we've been preparing, we've been looking forward to it, and now it's go time. Look at David, who stepped up to face Goliath. If you're having to take a stand against something, against the population or against your family or against your friends, look at Daniel. He took a couple of stands over his life, and he, he paid for it several times. If you're looking at life and you're like, okay, I know what I need to do, but I don't know if I'm competent to do this. Well, Solomon felt the same way. He said, how, how can I lead these people? And he ended up writing a couple books on how to be shrewd and wise in your life. If you look at yourself and you feel like, I just I can't get over my own obstacles. Forget the external things. I'm the problem. What about Peter? There's somebody that had some internal obstacles. It was Simon Peter. Look at his story. Learn from it. If you've lost everything, look at the story of Job. If you're dealing with difficult people, look to Elijah. Elijah never really had a buddy except for Elisha later on. He was always dealing with difficult people. You've got these examples that are there for your instruction and your edification. And they went through the same things that you've gone through. And so often, and there's, now this isn't wrong per se, we like to look to other examples, literary examples, examples from film, examples from history. Those are great. But the Lord has not only given you such examples in your Bible, He's given you a theological commentary on how it ought to be done, on what was done right, on what was done poorly. So look to God's Word if you don't know how to handle and conduct and speak in the moment. More than that, though, God himself will give you the words you need in the moment. You say, I'm, I'm slow of speech. I can't talk. I can't talk in front of people. I can barely talk in front of people I like and know. But look what Jesus said in Matthew 10. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. When they deliver you over, when that moment comes and it's time to talk, you've been living your life in a godly way, and now your friend you've been praying for comes up and says, what's your deal, man? It's time to speak. When you've been doing the right thing and helping ministries and helping things go along, and you see somebody who's going in the wrong direction or somebody that's starting to make a horrible mistake, it's time to speak. And the good news is that in that moment, God will give you what to say. We've already talked about Paul. There's no need to be eloquent. Just say what needs to be said. And you know what else? Learn the scriptures so that you have the words at hand already. Psalm 119.11, he said, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. That when you're stepping up into these situations, whether it's temptation, whether it's just a difficult situation, the Word is in you, speaking to you, reminding you of what is to be done and said. Jesus, when he was tempted by the devil in Matthew 4, opened up every response with, It is written. And the devil came right back with, It is written. 
But Jesus not only knew what the word said, he knew what it meant, and he knew the Lord who had inspired it, and so he was able to handle it effectively. Your words are small. You know, we, we think because we have Instagram and Facebook and Twitter that our words matter. And yet, listen, they, they do in a way. But compared to everybody else, your words don't matter much compared to anybody else. So when God raises you up to speak, that's a holy thing. And you need to look to the Lord because you have God's word for all time and you should expect it in the moment. So when it comes up and boom, now is the time to talk. I wasn't ready for it. Sometimes you're like, I sinned this morning. I can't talk about Jesus now. <laughs> yeah, you can. Jesus is already there with you and speak like you believe the Spirit is speaking through you because He is. That's what God told Moses. Well, God has whittled Moses down and gone through all of his excuses and he's got nothing else to say. So we're going to see what was really at the bottom of all these objections. Verse 13. But he said, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. <laughs> I love the way the ESV translates that. That really captures the sense of it. Please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. And I will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. This is the fifth and final objection, which gets to the heart of the matter. Moses doesn't want to go. He had a lot of great sounding excuses. But that was not the problem. Moses didn't really care that he couldn't speak well. He wasn't really afraid they were going to ask him God's name. He was terrified and didn't want to do it. So he got a lot of really nice, spiritual-sounding objections. The Hebrew there is, O Lord, send by whom you will send. It's an idiom that means, Lord, send whoever you want. But the problem is, God has already told him who he wanted. And so that's why I love the way that ESV puts it. Please send someone else. Anyone but me, Lord. This is the first time in the Old Testament that we see God's anger directed against a person. Isn't that interesting to think about? We've seen God's wrath, for example, poured out on Sodom or in the flood. But both of those instances were described as in the flood, God's grief that drove him to do that. And in the case of Sodom, it was God showing justice to those who had been oppressed by Sodom. But this is the first time we see God get angry with somebody. And it was because Moses is not just rejecting the mission, he's rejecting God's guarantee of power and assistance. Four times God has said, I will be with you, and Moses is still like, that's not enough for me. And so God is angry with him. So he directs him to Aaron. He calls him the Levite. Many people believe that this is a term of rank, that Aaron was, was somebody. He wasn't just Moses' brother, and that's why he became Aaron, the priest, but that he already had some kind of leadership and maybe even spiritual role within the nation of Israel and the tribe of Levi especially. We're going to see a lot of Aaron, of course. Aaron will speak for him, especially at the beginning, but as time goes on, Moses will eventually step up here. And, you know, the Bible does not put the blame on Moses for this, but I will say the people went to Aaron to make the golden calf. And perhaps if God, or if Moses had allowed God to give him the full authority that God wanted, that temptation would not have been present. 
Doing things less than what God originally intended are never a good idea. Moses could not see that God was on his side. He could only see himself. What he needed to realize, our third point that makes the impossible mission possible, is that you are on God's team. Moses was not alone. Not only was God with him, but Aaron was going to be with him too. God had already sent Aaron to him. God had already thought this through. Sometimes we pray like God forgot something. And when he went there, he was going to have Miriam on his team. He's going to have Joshua on his team. His wife is going to do something for him that he's probably glad she was around in later this chapter. When you look only at yourself, the mission becomes intimidating because it's you. But as, as that famous phrase is, you plus God is a majority. That God plus nothing is a majority, right? But if you're in the situation, you got God on your team. It's like when you used to play wiffle ball or pick up football in the backyard as a kid. There was always that one guy, and if he was on your team, you were going to win. That's just the way it was going to go. Pick that up a little bigger, and that's the Lord. You plus God is a majority, but you add other Christians into the midst. Now you've got a powerhouse, baby. It's not just a majority. It's unstoppable, which is exactly what Jesus said about his church. Here's a verse that has very often been misinterpreted, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't read it and know what it really says. This is what Jesus said about his church. Matthew 18 Verses 18 through 19. He said, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. What a radical promise. And there are some that want to take that to crazy town, but let's forget that for a minute. Jesus is saying, your prayers matter. I, the Lord is a delegator. He sends out his people to do his work, and he says, tell me what you need, and I'll give it to you. And if that's the decision you make, I'll honor that. Isn't that amazing to consider? If two of you agree on anything, it shall be done. We pray, Lord, on earth as it is in heaven. The Lord tells the same thing to the people here. It would be foolish to do God's work alone. You need the church with you. At the very least, you need one more person so that you've got that two or more thing going on, right? Even men that we remember standing alone, like the great Athanasius, whose nickname was Contramundum, which meant against the world. He wasn't alone. His church spirited him away into the desert, and the monks hid him there for years, even though the emperors were trying to find him. These nameless guys who took good care of this man while he was writing the words that were going to bring the church back together. No one's a lone ranger. 1 Kings 19, Elijah comes to the Lord and says, God, you might as well kill me. Because there's nobody else that serves you, and I'm the only one left, and you just call down fire from heaven, and they still don't believe. And God goes, Elijah, I have 7,000 other guys. So buck up and go get Elisha. You're not alone. So as you go about your mission, your calling, who's on your team? Have you tried to bring others along to help you? At the very least, to strengthen you and encourage you and build you up and instruct you for how best to do it? Sometimes we get possessive of our calling. We don't want Aaron to help us because then it'll be me and Aaron instead of just me. Or sometimes we get embarrassed about our calling. We don't want to tell anybody because they're going to say that I'm taking too much on myself or they're going to laugh at me. We shouldn't be that way. God put us into a community, the church, so that we can help each other practically and emotionally and spiritually and every other way. You know, even race car drivers, that they're the ones that are standing there with the flowers and, and shaking the champagne, but 
They have a crew, right? They have a team that without them, it wouldn't happen. There's a, you're going to pull over, they're going to change your tires, they're going to do the gas, they're going to do all that. He's got a crew chief watching and telling him and helping him direct him as he goes through this race. That's what the church is. You might have to be the one that has to execute it, but why would you reject any kind of help? It's foolish to do that. And that's what the church is, by the way. It's all about checking up on each other so that we can help each other fulfill the missions that we've been given. Oh, I'm just going to come and get my nugget for the week. Have you noticed that as those things have become more and more available online, it seems like less and less people feel the need to come and do it in person? The church is to be a family, a team, an army. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, you know this verse. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I love that. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. That's what the church is for. Stir one another up. To get yourself a little fired up. Not just from the preaching, but from each other. To love, that's, that's morality. That's doing the right things. But also to good works. To step up and do that thing that God's called you to do. What are you waiting for, man? you got to do it. You come to your home fellowship and you say, look, here's what I'm thinking through. I don't know if which one of these things is right. And then they all go, well, it's pretty obvious. It's this one. You go, really? Yeah, it's obvious to us. Okay, well, that's what the church is for. To encourage each other. Think about that word, encourage. To put some courage in you. What do you think about that morally, right? To, or emotionally to get over something. But to give you courage. To give you some backbone to step out and, and do what God's called you to do. It's there for accountability. To check up on you. Hey, you said you were going to talk to her. Did you talk to her? You said you were going to call him. Did you call him? Why haven't you done that thing? The Bible says to work hard and get after it. It's there to meet other people, to connect, that can help you in your mission and for you to help them with theirs, to lament when things go wrong, to celebrate when things go right. That's what the church is for. God's team. Don't try to do it on your own. Well, I've got the Lord. Yes, you've got the Lord, but the Lord said, go to church. <laughs> Lord said, you need some other people. God had already planned to send Aaron even before Moses was complaining. A team is always better than going solo. So join God's team. Not just being on his side, but being with his people. And all of a sudden, the task that seems impossible to you looks really doable. That's why we pray, by the way. You think, if I just had four more people, I could do this. Well, now you start praying for four more people. When you go to the church where there's lots of people and God starts to bring them to you. Whenever I meet with our ministry team leaders, that's what I always ask them. What would you need to get this done now? Who are you? Do you need more people? Do you need money? Do you need some help from the, the pulpit to announce things? What do you need? And very often, not putting anybody down, they go, I don't know. And that's, that's what we ought to do, is to come to that and say, what do I need? Who do I need? And come to the Lord, and He'll direct you to the church, to people that can supply those things for you. So that's God's team. And we'll end with verse 17. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. The <laughs> Lord is telling Moses, the only thing left for you to do is pick up your staff and go. I like that verse. The Lord's like, listen, I'm done talking about this. Get your staff and go. Kind of like when your mom is sending you off to school. Don't forget your lunch 
or now with my kids, don't forget your mask. <laughs> Got to go to school. I don't want to wear it. Well, they say you have to. Moses, pick up that staff, turn into a snake a minute ago. Yeah, be brave, pick it up, and let's go. Very often, the only thing that's left to be done with your calling and your life, what God's called you to do, your mission, is just to pull the trigger. Get up and go. You know you've got the staff with you. You know about the team. You know God's with you. So pick it up and get after it. So maybe that's what some of y'all need to hear. You've got everything all lined up, but you just can't pull the trigger. God likes to turn potential into actual. The Lord is the one that took the world that was formless and void and nothing, and he made something out of it. That's what God wants to do with your life too. But you've got to pick up the staff and get after it. And very often, we're afraid because the minute you step out to do it, all of a sudden, it's not perfect and pristine in your head anymore. Haven't you found that to be true? And you go, I'm going to get that job and it's going to be the best thing ever. And then you start working there. And slowly you realize, oh, it's not exactly what I expected. Marriages can be that way. We're, we're never going to fight. We're never going to have any complaints. We're just going to float around. Our feet aren't even going to touch the ground because we're so in love. And then you find out it's not quite like that. And people say things like, well, maybe we're not in love. No, you are. But that's what actuality is. Potential is always perfect. That's why folks will go five, six years and never declare a major because the minute you commit, you have to do it. And now there's the responsibility that you've got you've to make it happen. Which is why God is sitting here lighting a little fire under Moses and get out and do this. He was given a grand vision by God in the wilderness. There was a time of upheaval in his life and God showed him something new. He was afraid that he could not do it. So God revealed to him, number one, you have God's power. Number two, you have God's word. Number three, you're on God's team, so how could he lose? Same thing for you. You have God's power. You have God's word. You're on God's team. So what are you afraid of? Well, it might be messy. I, can, I promise you it will be messy. Moses is going to get there and... He's going to talk to Pharaoh. People are all with him. It's going great. And Pharaoh says, no. And in fact, I'm now doubling your work order. So then now the next day, they're not so happy with Moses anymore. You know, why did you come back here anyway? They're going to be in the wilderness and they're going to say, we should go back to Egypt. People are going to get, do like a power play and challenge Moses in front of everybody. His own sister is going to be bad-mouthing him in front of people. That's life. That's reality. Because it's a fight. It's a game. It's a battle. But the most important thing is that God is with us. And as Paul said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And I promise you, if you're stepping out into the purpose of your life that God has called you to do, God will strengthen you for that. Try to live out the vision on your own. You'll either fail or you will succeed, but it will be you-sized. You'll have a you-sized accomplishment. Oh, that's great but it could have been a God-sized accomplishment. God wants to lead you into that. Go in the strength of the Lord, though, and you can only succeed. Do it on your own. You might fail, and it will never live up to what God's promised. But if you do it in the strength of the Lord, you can only succeed. This is why we spend time in the presence of God. You learn His voice. You learn His word. You spend some time at the burning bush. You feel me? 
learn his presence, be around his people so that when the time comes, you can step out and get it done. The vision is too big for you, but it's not too big for the one who gave it to you.